Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. How can you brighten someone else's day? It may be a thoughtful gesture, a kind word, or simply sharing a smile. Our guest on this episode of Your History, Your Story is Michael Ray, founder of Smile Project Louisville, an organization created to affect attitude and behaviors through smiling and small random acts of kindness. Over the years, Michael's life had been affected by some tragic and difficult times, such as the death of a child, job insecurity, divorce, and the challenges of parenting a special needs daughter. One day in 2018, while Michael was feeling particularly down about the possibility of losing his job, he went to a Wendy's drive-thru to get some lunch. While giving his order, he encountered an employee whose smile and kind demeanor lifted his spirits greatly. That moment, coupled with the joy he had always felt from the smiles of his precious, nonverbal daughter, changed the course of Michael's life. Since its founding, Smile Project Louisville has gained momentum. Today, you can find pictures and videos of Michael's acts of kindness toward total strangers on social media. He has followers from all over the world and has also ventured into public speaking with the hope of touching more and more lives with smiles and love. I'd now like to welcome Michael Ray to our show. Welcome, Michael. James, thank you. Good afternoon. How are you, brother? I am fantastic because I'm speaking with you. <laughs> well, 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 I'm blessed and humbled that you would want to take time and share some space and, and hear my story. <laughs> I'd like to start at the beginning, Michael. Where are you from? Where were you born and where did you grow up? So uh, I'm in Louisville, Kentucky. I was born here, but I wasn't actually raised here. So when I was five, um, had a little bit unique upbringing in that my father worked 32 years for the FBI. So when he got his first assignment as an FBI agent, we migrated just a little bit north to Cleveland, Ohio. So I, I spent actually my entire childhood in Cleveland, graduated from high school. And I, I guess as, as some kids wanted, I wanted that separation from parents, but still wanted to be close to home. And I had that beautiful foundation of being from, again, Louisville, even though I wasn't raised here, but I had my entire extended family here. So I came back when I graduated from high school to Louisville a little bit over 30 years ago. And as the universe would spin um, in the latter part of my father's career, he had an opportunity to get back to where he was from, which was from here. So it literally kind of coincided and collided when uh, I was graduating from the University of Louisville. Part of my family ended up moving back. So I ended up, I ended up staying so even though my entire childhood primarily was up north, about 350 miles north in Cleveland on the, on the shores of Lake Erie, I've been here for, you know, more than half my life. Wow, that's quite the story. Now, your dad worked for the FBI. He must have been really someone cool to bring in for, you know, show and tell on, at school, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, back, back in the time, too, I mean, and again, you got kind of numb and used to it, but just the simplicity of coming home at night you know, after work and, and having a, a weapon on his, <laughs> you know, on his side and, and learning the respect, you know, for that. I was the oldest of seven kids. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I had, a, I had an appreciation for the work he did. And, and I often tell people as it relates to that, I mean, he, he worked and operated in the Bureau and really in a much different time. He started in 66. Mm. Actually, it was when he was in college, clerk, like I said, got out of the academy in 74 and then went till 99. So it was really even pre-internet, pre-9-11, you know, a lot of things that, that had actually changed. So he, he kind of operated in that space of more of um, organized crime and narcotics and uh, uh, a lot of the stories that I heard post-retirement. Yes, you had to wait for those. <laughs> I had to wait for those. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's terrific. So growing up, uh, what were some of your hobbies? What did you like to do as a kid? Um, you know, I think like most kids, you know, um, I, I, I would say I was blessed growing up in a time in which video games really weren't that popular yet. Mm -hmm. So it was really about creating that space and running around with, with friends. Um, you know, it's, it's especially, you know, now that we're getting, uh, we're in the summer, you know, you're talking about just be home before it got dark or before the streetlights came on. You know, so for me, it was a circle of friends that I ran around with. I was a big sports guy. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't play a ton of sports. I did play baseball and track, but I was more into, you know, growing up. I tell people, you know, growing up in a city that had professional sports, mm -hmm. there was a huge following in Cleveland. So that, that became and still is to this day a big part of my life. Now, you mentioned that you went to college down in Louisville, right? I did. I did. Okay. What career path did you want to take? I haven't talked about this much. And again, you know, we're roughly 30 years removed from it. But, you know, if you can envision the movie Jerry Maguire, mm -hmm. um, I wanted to be a sports agent. Oh. So I focused um, in business and sports administration. I did multiple internships um, back in the early 90s with uh, actually sports attorneys and sports agents and really, really thought the path I was going to take <laughs> was was going to be an agent. And I found it challenging to get in. And I, I waited on tables for about a year trying to get into that industry, couldn't. And then as, as things would happen and fate, um, a really close friend of mine from college got into the mortgage industry. And in the mid nineties, I went to work for a company in which, um, you know, was looking for somebody. And as they would say, the rest is history. I got in the mortgage industry in 1994. Okay. And, and rode that way for, for a long time. Yeah, so the mortgage industry was doing pretty well there for a while. I know that. You know, it, it, it was. I operated in sales, but on a different side of the industry in which was on the wholesale side. So I basically worked for companies that made thousands of mortgages a month, and then they would bundle them into these securities or instruments in which they would turn around and sell them, generally speaking, on Wall Street. And I was in the middle of all of that in 07, 08, and 09 when, when the industry basically, for all intents and purposes, collapsed. I remember that clearly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But before we talk about that and how that impacted you and your family, let's talk about your family. So you were married and you had children. Tell us about your family a little bit. I did. So um, I was with my ex-wife for a little bit over 20 years. We were married about 16. I had, um, I used the term had because I lost a child. So I had five kids. I have four. The good Lord took one home. So I've got three girls and a son. And the son that I did lose was an identical twin to my youngest. So 
ages vary a little bit. My, my daughters are 21, 23, and 25, and my son is 15. Oh, now I, I'm sorry. I, I hate to ask this, but how, how old was your son when he was uh, about three months old? Oh, that's so sad, Michael. But yeah, three months old in, in just a very, very unique, rare situation in which, and we, we really didn't know until they actually did an autopsy in which he had a brain condition called multicystic encephalopathy. And he had a clot that basically burst. Hmm. Um, he seized and, and pretty much almost killed him instantly. You really had two turn of events. He was either going to die instantly, or if he survived, he would have been a vegetable the rest of his life. So what a huge tragedy that must have been, must have rocked your family. Um, you know, yeah, it's, it's one of those things, obviously looking back now, it's, you know, it's a lot easier to talk, you know, 15, 16 years later. Um, you know, it was, if I asked you, you know, where you were September 16th, 2006, you would have most likely no idea. I could tell you the events of, of the entire day, almost hour by hour of what was going on through the entire day. And I, and I live with that. And, and again, that's okay. I think, yeah, I think for me, the struggle and challenge of overcoming the grief and the emotions with it was that I had an identical twin. So I always looked at it and had this constant reminder of what would have been if he would have survived. And I think there were some unique circumstances too, you know, again, we had three girls. We had waited five years. We really didn't think we wanted to have more kids. You know, the fear of having another child. I hate to say this, but those are the emotions and, and going, oh my gosh, are we going to have a fourth girl? And then when we found out she was pregnant and then they were going to be twins, it was literally like, oh my God, if, if I get two more girls, I'm condemned, you know, kind of thing. And then when we found out that they were going to be boys, you know, the emotions probably in some form or fashion again changed um, because I had three girls yeah. and I started playing through my head, you know, all of kind of what that would encompass, you know, and for me, I've always kind of operated from a place of a, with a lot of energy. And one of the nicknames I had growing up for my grandfather was cyclone because it was like, you just, you're, you're moving everywhere, you know, kind of thing. And I just kind of, I guess, envisioned, you know, people, going where there goes those Ray boys. Mm -hmm. So when that was taken from me, you know, and it, and it was taken at a very unique time in my life too, because it was really on the doorstep of the mortgage industry, mm. you know, collapsing. So it was kind of, unfortunately, that double-edged sword of you're facing this personal trauma. And then that carried into professional trauma. So 2008, mortgage industry was slammed, the yeah. economy was slammed in general, so that now you've got the impact on your career. So how did that affect you? What, what happened? I mean, this is what you were used to doing for a long time since the 90s. How did you pivot from that? Well, I really didn't. You know, I go back and look, you know, and again, it's, it's a lot easier to take a look at now and go, where were your shortcomings, your mistakes, you know, you know, things you would do differently. I think when I was wrapped up in it, and again, having this side trauma, not being able to get over it. And, and fundamentally, James, one of the challenges I had, and then it, it kind of led into the marital struggles, because my son had died in the house. 
And then when you get to a point that, you know, look, when you're struggling professionally, it can mean a lot of times too, there's struggles financially. (laughs) And that's the direction, you know, it started to go. And, you know, again, I look and I, I want to smile about it when I talk about it, you know, in hindsight, probably the best thing being in it for about a year would have been going, let's sell the big house. Let's make changes. Let's downsize. And I wanted no part of it because my son had died in the house. And that was really the onset of the struggle, you know, in a marriage, Mm. you know, the loss of a child and then the financial piece and really having to make some hard decisions. But yet my ex-wife, my wife at the time was like, we need to move. And look, she was right. But I look back and I go, no, you're going to have to pry my lifeless body from this house. My son died in this house. I'm, I'm not leaving this house. You know, so as the industry basically kept tanking through that period of time, the first job I lost was in January of 07. And I lost six jobs in 18 months. And that, that's basically because everywhere you went thinking that there was going to be safety, there was no safety anywhere, whether it was with Wall Street, whether it was with big banks, they all, they all just in some form or fashion, they either collapsed, you know, like I worked for a division of Lehman Brothers. A lot of people probably haven't heard that, that name in a long time, you know, a, a firm that had been around forever and you thinking there was safety there, but again, there wasn't safety really anywhere. So the financial piece, you know, I went from making two, 300 grand, having a hundred thousand dollars in savings and you think you're you're set. And then I couldn't even earn 30 grand, you know? So when you then don't change your lifestyle, you just start hemorrhaging cash <laughs> to stay in the house, to stay in the cars, to keep the kids in private schools. You know, all of those things I look back on now, again, I would do it radically differently, but yet I am who I am today. Because of what happened. So it was, you know, when you use that term, a perfect storm for me, it was the perfect storm of personal and professional struggle from all angles really you're being hit so you're you're kind of kind of hitting bottom there aren't you michael (laughs) you know there's no doubt um that i did and i look back on that time and and i thought for me the safety was i'm going to be able to fix it with a pill and that was antidepressants Mm -hmm. um you know i started taking antidepressants and I kind of laugh about it now in which I say my drug of choice was sugar. (laughs) I found comfort in sugar. So we're a product of our choices. So even though I found comfort in sugar, as far as what it created in my brain, you wake up and you go, well, how did I gain 50 pounds? (laughs) How did that happen? And it doesn't creep up in six months, but, but again, these are the choices and things that we make over over a few years and you sit there and go, I'm beyond broken. I'm beyond broken. And I think that, um, you know, again, I look back and I tell people in which the first time we stepped foot in counseling was in 2010 and it was three and a half years too late. It was so beautiful, but yet we couldn't fix the marriage, but I kept going to counseling myself because I knew I was a broken man. Yeah. And there were things in my life, you know, that I needed to work on to, and again, when I say work on, it's finding how we control that thing up there 
So when we face adversity and struggle and challenges, that's how we perceive things. Yeah, definitely. And the fact that you stayed on in the counseling is so important because some, sometimes people are, they might go into counseling and say, oh, you know, I'll try it. And, you know, if, if it doesn't fix you, then I'm done. You know, it's yeah. not, what about me? <laughs> maybe it can fix me. <laughs> maybe, maybe, but maybe not just fix, maybe it's a, a process, you know, and, and learning more things about yourself. Hey, you're, you said it because it's not like slapping some duct tape on it no. and then it's all better. It's, exactly. it, it, it is, you know, I look back at that time of my life, just like the weight that I knew that I had to lose, it was going to take making different choices and it was going to take time, yeah. but you kept doing what you needed to do. So in the case of sugar, it's, you know, you, you understood it was an addiction and, and you quit. And then, you know, again, as it, as it was counseling, even though the marriage was broken and we went that route and went through divorce, I want to say I went, I went on with counseling for a solid three plus years. Now, instead of going every week, I mean, it's, you, you find the right spots and a healthy balance and then it's every other week and then it's once a month. But again, you continually work on things in your life to finally put you in a position to be able to manage. So important. Now, the fact you were going to counseling was, was really good, but really things were, things were rough financially, uh, you know, personally, and your family and uh, your health, everything was sort of, sort of not too good. Not a lot to smile about. I would say most people would say that's not a lot to smile about, but something started to change right at that point. And, and I think one of those changes occurred because you decided you wanted to go to Wendy's. That's correct. You know, so I tell people I had a foundation and that foundation was when I speak of having three daughters, well, one of them was very unique in that she has Down syndrome. She's nonverbal. So when you're nonverbal and you can't speak, you do start to pay attention to the nonverbal cues. So for her and I, for Maddie and I, it, it was truly the simplicity of, of smiling. So I had that foundation, but yes, as you, as you speak directly to a Wendy's, um, you know, look, I'll let you climb in my head. You know, it's, it's the winter of 2018. I begrudgingly got back into the mortgage industry and I knew it wasn't working. I had been out of it for years. I knew it wasn't working. So when I left the office that morning to go get lunch, and I won't, you know, again, I won't forget the day. I mean, it's one of those days that felt like it was... 42 and, and, and rainy and it's cold and it's gray Ugh. and I'm processing going you're 48 you've come a long way but yet this job's not working out what are you going to do for the, for the rest of your life yeah. so it's those things that I tell people so for me as I went through the Wendy's drive-through it was a different interaction I didn't you know again we don't expect this because whether you go through Starbucks, through Wendy's, you hit the grocery store, mm -hmm. you're at the gas pump, no matter where we are, we're going through our routines and in our own minds, we're processing where we are in life. Yeah. So as I went through the drive through late that February morning, it truly was that very short interaction with a girl by the name of Sean Trail. And in that moment, I didn't really understand the full gravity of it 
but I knew it was impactful because instead of leaving the parking lot, I decided to pull over mm. and I parked for a second and I actually broke down crying. Oh boy. And I was having a conversation with myself and, and I was like, you know, if anybody out there listening has faith, I was like, God, what are you trying to tell me in this moment? And for me, I think what I understood was the importance of a singular quick moment. So the only thing I felt compelled to do was to get out of the car, to walk back up through the drive-thru window and thank her. And I don't know why I did that. And again, I was lucky because no other cars were pulling up. And I just said, do you mind if I take our picture to remember this? Just think about this. You got a stranger, you know, we're laughing and, and, and she's like, what, you want my picture? And I'm like, yes, but I took it. But again, and it allows you then to separate from that moment. And as the next couple of days passed by, I looked back at the picture multiple times and I started thinking about what that, that simple, singular, quick moment meant. And then again, I won't forget it because I, a couple of days later, I was in the gym working out and I ran into a young boy about 14 and I started having a conversation with him. And next thing I knew, I felt compelled to ask him to take a picture. And then if, like three days later, I, again, I, I won't forget some of the first few weeks and where I was. And, the, and I walked into a retail store called the vitamin shop and it was the dude behind the counter. And I don't know why, again, I was like, I want to take my picture with this dude. And that's basically kind of where this journey started because I started meeting strangers um, I, I got joy from these very short interactions. It wasn't like I was having 30 minute conversations with people. <laughs> you know, we're, we're talking in some cases, a few minutes, your paths were crossing in weird places. Again, I often told people as I took pictures, I never knew the who, the where, the what, the when, the why. I just always knew I was in the right place. That is so cool. So I want to back up a little bit. Yeah. The, the young lady at uh, Wendy's was Chantrell. Was her name? Chantrell. So, so what happened? She, she smiled. She was pleasant. She was kind. What, what was it about her that made you pull off and actually get emotional? She, she had an infectious personality. The interesting thing is, as I have now shared this story countless times, I do get asked, do you remember what she said to you? <laughs> so the answer to that question is no you know look let's fast forward now roughly four years later um i don't know and i had heard um I, I probably had heard it once or twice in my life and it never really resonated with me and i got asked this question early on um when i say early on i started doing videos so i'm, I'm rewinding now maybe two and a half years ago and someone said to me, he goes, well, you, you remember what Maya Angelou said? And I'm like, no, what? But when they said this quote, people will forget what you said. They will forget what you did, but they won't forget how they made you feel. Mm. So when we go back and talk about Chantrell, it's not important remembering what she said to me. 
I still, to this day, four plus years later, remember how she made me feel, you know, in that moment. So when you ask me that question, the words aren't important. What is important was that 30, 40 seconds we had at a drive through window in which I can remember just being alive, laughing, you know, cutting up. And I'm very playful and I'm a high extrovert. So a lot of times I feed off the energy from someone else. Yep. So if they're very joyful, and I guess you could say they're playful with words, I'm right back. And I can just remember in that short moment, both of us laughing. And, I, and I'm probably 25 years older than her, mm-hmm. you, you know, and, and I, again, why do you pull over? But something struck me in, I probably sat in the car for a good five minutes before I got out because it was the crying. It was having that conversation with myself and God and understanding. And and at least if nothing else, I'm going to take a picture to remember it. But then as I started taking all of these other pictures with people um, I, I probably had done that for eight to 10 weeks. And, and I want to say I maybe had 25, 30 pictures and I won't forget. I had a conversation with one of my daughters. She's 25 now. So let's rewind. She was like a junior in college and, you know, social media is big. And even though I had, a, I was on Facebook, I mean, let's call it what it is. I mean, you're showing pictures of, Hey, I'm going to the movies or, uh, I, I this is what I had for dinner and all that kind of stuff. She's like, dad, you need to share these to Facebook. So that's when I started sharing. I started sharing them to Facebook and it even evolved a little bit in which I wasn't just getting someone's name and, and going, you know, Hey, I'm here with Sean Trell today at Wendy's. I started finding out one or two really interesting things about the people that I was with. Um, and, you know, again, I, I wanted to be highly respectful of people's time and, and where we were, you know, so it wasn't about having 30 minute conversations rather than I guess what I started understanding was the importance as we intersect with so many people. We just don't know what people are going through in life. That's so right. That is you so know? true. Yeah, definitely. And, I- and again, for me even though I had come such a long way in how certain things in my life weren't as challenging and as impactful, I was still battling adversity going, I'm 48 years old. What's my next move? But in the moment, you know, again, it's Sean Trell. And that's why I try to really emphasize and get people to understand is that in most cases, we don't think these singular moments mean anything. It's just weaving through our daily life. But yet I often go back to that simplicity of if Sean Trell can change my life at a Wendy's drive-thru, <laughs> <laughs> then, then again, think about then no matter where you are um, and, and what your actions may mean to an absolute stranger. And it doesn't mean, you know, again, it doesn't mean you got to go around and start shooting videos, taking pictures giving people hugs, because again, for me, when it started, it had nothing to do with that. It was just connecting with strangers on a different level. Yeah, because how many, I mean, we have our circle of friends and maybe 
business associates that we intersect with regularly, our family and things like that. But there are a lot of people we run into in the neighborhood. People, maybe you've seen them once or twice, but you've never really, really had a conversation. I just had just about, about a week ago, I woke up, I was a little, just, I kind of got out of the wrong side of the bed. I just didn't feel very positive. And there's this guy walking out of his house. And I thought to myself, I, it was weird. I thought I'm a pretty sociable person. And yeah. I just didn't, I kind of looked the other way. Like I didn't want to make eye contact. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I got my dog and, and, and the guy gets in his car. Next thing you know, he pulls up next to me and he says, that is such a beautiful dog. That dog is so cute. He says, he goes, you just made my day. Thank you. And he drove off. And I thought I felt horrible. And I wasn't going to sort of give him the time of day. And so just that little intersection, a comment positive about my dog, a smiling, happy person who said that I made his day when I had every intention of ignoring him. You know yeah. what I mean? So when you say having these little moments with people, you don't know what they're going through. You have no idea. And it sounds like something you had something now that's really starting to go now. So when you run into people, what was your reasoning? Were people like backing off and saying, whoa, who are you? You know, or things like you that. You know what? So, so thankfully, <laughs> I often say, I do feel like we all have different gifts. And one of the gifts that I have is the ability to make people feel comfortable. I see that. And especially strangers. Because obviously, if you're approaching strangers in different forms and fashion, you know, look and when I say I'm a high extrovert, I never know what's going to come from my mouth. But, <laughs> but again, a lot of it just comes from a place in which making people feel comfortable and safe in which they feel open in these short moments to receive what I truly do think is happening. And that is just the ability to show love to another human being without saying, oh my God, I love you. You know, because again, I just come to the simplicity of, of actions and how we treat others. So, so yes, I mean, for me, I mean, I, I had a little bit of a pitch, you know, in that I figured I, I had to, I have to get people's attention in the first four or five seconds, you know, and I started saying, you know, I'm the smile guy and I'm, I'm really just trying to change attitudes and behaviors with people by, by smiling. You know, and, and again, it evolved because instead of just saying I'm here today with Sean Trell, I, I found out, you know, as I started taking more and more pictures and I, I look back on that time and I tell people in which I didn't chase pictures, you know, so it wasn't like it was, it was Monday and I was going, holy crap, I haven't taken a picture in five days. I have to go driving around today. It's not about that because you don't, because again, I go back to just what we do through the course of our day. I mean, you, you might, well, I don't know what the predominant grocery store is up there, but here it's Kroger's. You might walk into a Kroger's and you might intersect with 20 different people. That doesn't mean you got to talk to all 20. But again, in certain moments, I just felt compelled. And sometimes it was just the simplicity of like going through the self-checkout and noticing someone's name. And, and, and this is a real example. I mean, of, of just two weeks ago, and the girl's name tag said hope. And I looked down and I said, hope you give me hope. I said, you're beautiful. Have a great day. And she goes, aw. You know, so again, we don't know. So I'm more intentional. Whereas 
I call people by their name when they have name tags. I choose at times to give <laughs> to give random people fist bumps or high fives and things because I think that they get caught off guard. We're living in some really weird times, <laughs> you know, right now. So yeah, it does go back to her name and just giving people hope because again, fundamentally, it really goes back to the core of what I'm trying to do is that I went through a time in my life in which I didn't smile. And I'll never forget it because now, James, I've intersected with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not well over a thousand, you know, strangers. And there's certain moments, you know, of all these people, you know, look, I won't diminish any of the encounters. But I think some have a special place in my heart over others for what they have taught me. And I was with a third grade teacher. She was 28. She was battling stage three colon cancer. And I got asked to come into the school to help make her smile. But what I had learned was, even though she was going through treatment, she was this insanely positive person. And as I'm sharing space with her in front of about 20, 25 of her school kids in the classroom, what I really understood was, you know, for people like her, her name was Carly, who chose to smile through adversity. That's when life is really good because you have to understand. And so, so again, I go back to that time and place for me, you know, when you lose a son, you're broke, your marriage is falling apart. You think there's nothing to smile about. So then your actions impact so many lives of others. I was insanely negative. I hated the world. Mm -hmm. You know, you go through all of that because of what you're going through rather than taking a step back and understanding and looking at it going, okay, life isn't perfect. It's not supposed to be easy, but it's still good regardless of how bad it is, it is still good. So as I'm meeting so many strangers is just giving them that feeling and understanding of regardless of where you are in life, it's still good. So now, because I've, I've been able to control this mind, yeah, my mind, you know, um, I, I said something to my oldest daughter recently and she goes, say that again, dad. And I said, okay. And I, I, what I told her was, I said, I don't have bad days. I have bad moments. Hmm. I'm still a human being. It doesn't mean that I don't have moments in my day in which I might get upset or it flusters me, but I don't allow those to control me because then if you allow bad moments to control you, they turn into bad days and bad days turn into bad weeks, bad months bad years. I've lived it. And I go back in that time and was like, you know, when you talk about being so broken personally, that's why I got to a place in which I was so broken professionally. You know, if you're broken professionally, a lot of times you bring that home and it starts to invade that space and you're broken personally. So it's, it's really, when I talk about smiling, it's really just trying to adopt this mindset of regardless of where we are in life, it's still beautiful, and yet we don't know where someone else in the journey they're on, where they are here. So 
when I started doing videos and things, it's really just trying to recreate moments for people to give them what I felt with a Wendy's drive-through worker. <laughs> that is amazing. You yeah. Know, you know, that that's, that's, it's really, it's that simple. Particularly now in the last couple of years with the pandemic and people's lives being sort of turned upside down, you know, there's a lot of isolation fear you've got sure issues with elderly people young people who so uh, many emotions oh they're, they're everybody's sort of like you know what's next what's next you know what are we going to hear that's com coming down the line next and even though we're starting to emerge from this pandemic there's still these feelings of maybe fear or sort of on edge that maybe life isn't the same and to be a person who can go out and make people smile people who you've just run into is so incredible and i wanted to bring up what you said before about your daughter maddie you had mentioned that you really had that foundation in you by watching and interacting with your nonverbal daughter who you had to look for how she felt by what her expressions were does she smile a lot you know what? She smiles all the time. It's a very unique condition she has. And when I say condition, look, it's Down syndrome. I'm not talking about Down syndrome, but there's something very unique about those who have Down syndrome and really how they look at life and look at people. And when you talk about the pandemic, it, it truly, we were, we were days into it. And I turned and looked to her and even though she's nonverbal and she, she truly says like five singular words has never put two words together. I looked at her and I said, you don't give a rat's ass that we can't leave. You know, I think it's because they don't process fear and anxiety and stress the way you and I do the way the so-called normal people do. You know, so therefore then that mindset that she has is she lives in this space of almost infinite joy and happiness. But so, so you're in a start of a pandemic, you can't leave your house. It's not the same going to the grocery store. You can't go out to eat all these things, but she's still happy. We, our lives are so complicated, <laughs> you know, and trying to figure it all out and working from home and kids not going to school and all of those moving pieces in which. I look back at her going, it doesn't matter because where you find your joy and happiness is just being home with family. We're not chasing it because we go, I would love to have a, a better vacation this year or a bigger car. And I, I've, I've never diminished material things, but that's how a lot of us think. We chase other things rather than just looking at what is in our lives already is really that foundation. So it was, and I tell people this, if anyone's a parent listening to this, understand and, and get that mindset of what we probably insanely take for granted is our kids always say, I love you. Hmm. They just do. At three, four years old, when they start to speak, you know that mommy, I love you. Maddie has never said, I love you, ever. So again, that foundation was my affirmation as I went through my depressions and my struggles, the one constant I always had was her. And I would sit there in the car and it would just be the two of us. And I would sit there crying because my life was miserable. And then I would turn to her and she would just be smiling. 
Oh. And I'd be like, you love daddy, don't you? And she would light up. So I never had to hear the words. And I go back to, again, it's, it's a feeling. Yeah. It's that feeling I always got from her. And that affirmation and that feeling was just the simplicity of, of smiling. That's the only way she knew how to communicate back to say, dad, I love you. And this is how I'm telling you is I'm just going to look at you and my face is going to light up. That is unbelievable. The whole connection of Maddie and, and the way that you just explained that time in the car is just, it really got me because you are seeing the real deal. We can sometimes falsely smile, you know, pretending to be happy or pretending to be happy to see somebody or whatever, when, when we may have something else on our mind because we're in a bad place or whatever. But when you see that pure, honest, sincere, heartfelt smile that says, I love you, I'm happy to be with you. I'm happy to have interacted with you right now. That's what it's supposed to be like for all of us. But it's just not because life happens. <laughs> you have to be able then, as it does happen, as I tell people, is create just the bad moments, not the bad days, and knowing, going, okay, today wasn't the greatest at work, but I came home to you. And now I get to share my space and my evening with you who I love, whether that's your spouse, your children, your friends, no matter what your network is in life. So it's, again, we, we, we have talked about this multiple times. It just goes back to understanding. Mother Teresa talked about the work she did in India, in which it allowed me at times to understand Maddie more and more. And that was, Mother Teresa said some of the most joyful people she'd ever experienced in her life were the poorest of the poor. I mean, beyond what we think is poor here in this country. In a lot of cases, they didn't know where their next meal was coming from. But yet, and they had no possessions. But yet they found this space to look at life differently. And I'm convinced the reason being is because of people. It was still the people that were in their life. So even though life was really hard because they'd wake up and go, I don't know where I'm eating breakfast or lunch or am I eating today? And I'm living on a dirt road. I'm alive. They looked at life so differently. And that's why I've learned all of these lessons from Maddie. You know, um, she's probably more perfect than we realize. Definitely. So I want to ask you, Michael, you try to go back into the mortgage business again. You're feeling this, is, you're not feeling it. You've now, you've brought this base that you have and, uh, that you've developed through loving and interacting with your daughter, Maddie. And now you've, you've been propelled into this, this uh, sense of really interacting with people in a positive way and giving people small moments to feel important, to feel loved. How did this branch off into something bigger into smile project louisville what what happened how did that happen well you know at first you you give it a name and you give it a name because you don't think again let's get back into my head mm -hmm. it's never going to be anything big it's just because your daughter goes oh dad you got to call it something <laughs> <laughs> and and again i rewind four years ago when i decided to call it smile project louisville it was just the simplicity of truly I was like, oh, I'm doing this little project about smiling. And I happen to live in Louisville, Kentucky. And you call it that, you know, but the more you give, 
and the more you feel from others. And I often tell people too, you know, I've allowed it to evolve to where it transcended into doing videos too with people. I just started sharing it on bigger platforms. And we're here today primarily because of sharing it on a platform that's very unique. And that's LinkedIn. It's not Facebook because most of us have a tendency to think when we say social media, we, we think of Facebook. But I, I had done my work for almost two years and I was only sharing it on Facebook. And I, and I had a movement. I look back at some of my early stuff and I used to say, well, I had this organization called Small Project Global. It wasn't an organization at all because it was me. <laughs> and maybe I would take Maddie. And I look back and laugh now. But what really I what I started was a movement that people felt it was really compelling to some. I was touched by a lot of parents who had children with special needs, especially mothers in which they said, it's usually not the dad. It's the mom doing this stuff. So for you to, to do what you do and showcase, you know, your daughter, it just touched the lives. And then so you start sharing it on a bigger platform like LinkedIn. So instead of putting it on Facebook and people around Louisville seeing it, next thing you know, it's somebody from Los Angeles, New Jersey, Dallas, Texas, you know, all over the place, you know, started watching and seeing and telling me how they were touched in some form or fashion by something we did. Terrific. So you're going around, you're selecting people to make them smile and to have a photo or a video moment and, and document that. What is your hope for the future? A lot of what we have done was through the generosity of others, really coming back to that phrase, pay it forward. So again, I took pictures for almost two years and I had an epiphany in which I said, okay, I'm taking all these pictures. What would it be like if I did a random act of kindness to get someone else to smile in a moment? And that's when it started to evolve in doing videos. And even that evolved, James, because as I was doing that, and I had done that for months, as people start watching that, of course, the normal course of thought is, how do you find these people? <laughs> <laughs> And that's when it evolved again, because then people would reach out to me and go, well, what if I told you about Carly, who's got stage three colon cancer, you know, and people then started telling me the stories of others and where they were in their journey. And maybe by having me come in and just having a moment, sure, you know, and again, I'm not spending an hour with people and this truly really is as simple as, and I call it kind of freelancing, and that's ad-libbing to where I'll hit somebody in a grocery store and turn the camera on and I spend 75 seconds with them. And it's not about hanging out afterwards because I don't process people fawning over me and going, oh my God, I don't. So a lot of times when I do these things, what I really haven't talked about a lot publicly is when I do it, when the camera, when the phone goes off, I'm hugging it out and I'm looking for my exit strategy because it's more about allowing them to enjoy and understand the moment 
more than them thanking me for what I just did. That makes sense. It's it's almost like your moment after interacting with Chantrell, you had to pull off to the side and think about it. Think about what and that think moment about it. So when I'm in these moments with these people, whether I know them or not, and, and a lot of times when I tell people when I freelance or ad lib, again, I don't go out today going, I'm looking to give away 50 or a hundred dollars to a complete stranger. I usually have something with me going, oh, I, there's something different about hope at the self-checkout at Kroger's today. And, and when you feel that, and I would tell people that when they've watched more often than not, I just get it right. It's not about being right because again, I don't go in going, oh, I only have one gift card. I see 10 people. It's just a matter of, of what I feel in moments in which I have chosen to do things. And then in some cases, I find out about it after the fact about what someone's going through and I had no clue. And then it's like, we got it right again. This is wonderful. I, I'm trying to see what, if you could think five years down the road, what do you, what do you see for, uh, I mean, ultimately, you know, one of the places where I want to be is on stage. Okay. Um, you know, and this is a compliment other people have given me in which, you know, they, they talk about the level of energy and the personality and, and kind of what I bring. And sometimes people have a unique presence. This is really cool. We're doing this on zoom. But to be in the presence of someone else and kind of see and feel and live it. So when I talk about wanting to be on stage and being in front of large audiences, I think I have a story that resonates that is just different telling it in front of you rather than over a Zoom call. You know, so when I get asked that, that is one of the places I go back to that we're trying to navigate those waters in which, okay, how do we figure that out? And a lot of it is in creating a living around doing this is how can we do more? (laughs) You know, how how can you do more? And, And I often truly, I go back to a singular moment I had about two and a half years ago with a mother it hit me for the first time. And I'd been doing it about six months where I would physically doing random acts of kindness. And in most cases, again, I was giving away 50 to hundred bucks. And I went to this family that had six kids, but three months before they had just lost a daughter. She was 14. She oh. had a seizure. She died suddenly. Oh. And I'm sitting on her front porch crying with her. And this family was just broken. And I had learned they were so broken financially, they couldn't afford a tombstone. And that's when James had hit me going, sometimes a hundred bucks just is not enough to make make somebody smile. And I said, you know, I wish I had a thousand dollars laying around to give to that family to go buy them a tombstone. Because in that case, the gravity of the situation may be a little bit more, you know, more unique. So and we have done some things around the holidays where we've given more. Um, we, we did something during COVID with single mothers where we gave single mothers four and $500 for their families to go shop for, we called it saving Santa. You know, cause again, a hundred dollars is cool, but if you're a single mother of three kids, a hundred bucks doesn't get it done. <laughs> but oh, if you can it. give them $500, that goes a long way, you know, so. So when I get asked that question, you know, first it's wanting to speak in front of people. And secondly, it's just, 
unfortunately in life, it just takes money to do more. Yes. Yes. Well, that, that's what uh, I think is uh, one of the reasons we wanted to do this podcast is because what you're doing is terrific. It, it's terrific at any time, but also this, uh, after these two years of the pandemic and a lot of the sad news that's been on the, on the television recently, really terrible, tragic news. And there's a lot of divisiveness going on as well. And it just to have somebody like you who uh, you're looking for those small moments to interact with people to either just to, to get them to smile, to smile with them, uh, at them, and also to, to do a random act of kindness to help somebody out. Sometimes the fact that somebody is doing something kind for you is far more valuable than what it is that they're actually giving you. <laughs> you know, and, I think that's you know what it works. You have nailed that. And I will tell you, again, it goes back to that moment with Chantrell. And, and I know we're, we're coming to the end. And this is kind of one of the things I want to leave with people is that when someone watches a video and sees me giving them 50 or $100, okay, it looks cool. It makes a splash. But I often think and tell people, you spend it. Look, it may be groceries. It may be gas. No matter what it is, people don't forget them. You know, so when I went through the checkout line at Kroger's and I had no cash, but I chose to get out 20 bucks and I don't know why I handed it to Hope. And I have these little smile cards and it has a smile on the front and on the back, it has my name and it says, be the reason someone smiles today. And it has my phone number. And then when somebody like Hope texts you and goes, I can't thank you enough because my week has been awful. It's not about the $20. No. It's not about the 50 again. It's about the feeling. And again, to me, it's what I've learned from Maddie. And it's the ability just to make strangers feel loved in these very simple moments. And it's not always about money because 98% of what I do has nothing to do with money. It's just how I live and treat people, you know, and, and it goes back to the moment of how a 22 year old can treat a 48 year old to drive through to change his life. Michael, how can people find out more about you? How can they contact you and this movement that you have? If, yeah, if they're on LinkedIn, just go find Michael Ray, follow what we share with the world daily. My website, Smile Project Louisville, is on there. Email me, call me. I mean, and people are still fascinated because my phone number and my contact information's on there. And they all of a sudden out of nowhere call and go, Why do you think you were going to answer? And I'm like, Well, you called me. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, Well, uh -huh. you're Michael Ray. And I'm like, Well, no, I'm just, at the end of the day, I'm just a dude who I think on some level has figured it out. And I'm just trying to share with as many human beings right now so they can figure it out in their life. Because I think that this life doesn't have to be endless struggle. <laughs> My last question was going to be, what do you want your legacy to be? I think you just said it. So I don't even have to ask the question anymore. Uh, you're making me smile, Michael. And I know you make so many others smile. And I want to thank you for being on our podcast, for sharing your incredible story. You're just a dose of good medicine right now. I'll tell you that. Uh, amen, brother. And, and you know what? I often say this when I've had the pleasure of sharing space with someone as beautiful as you. Thank you 
for wanting to bring me into your world and share my story with your audience. So thank you. Um, thank you. And God bless. And I wish you all the best for just a fantastic thing that you're doing. Smile Project Louisville. And I hope people will contact you. We're really going to be following you and seeing what you're up to next. Give Maddie a hug for us. I will. Okay? I will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. God bless, guys. Love you. Okay. God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. You can connect with us on Facebook and YouTube at Your History, Your Story, or on Instagram and Twitter at YHYS Podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.